Welcome to the OKC Community Podcast. We are so glad you're here. To get the latest updates or to watch this week's message, visit our website at okccommunitychurch.com. All right, friends, we are in week six of Fire in Our Hearts, and I am excited about our day together and what God has in store for us. And so why don't you look at the person next to you and say, uh, just say, get a fire. Now look at the person to the other direction, your other neighbor, and say, in your heart. Today, my friends, we are in Acts chapter 3, 4, 5, and 8. We're going to be in all of them today. If you have a Bible and you want to go to Acts 3, that's what we'll start in a few minutes. But I want to ask you a different question. You can put the question on the screen here. Have you ever been changed by the power of the yacht? And some of you are like, what does that mean? What is the power of the yacht? Well, we're going to talk about it a little bit today. Uh, this is the title of our message, The Power of the Yacht. So once again, everyone say, The Power, power. of the yacht. the yacht. That's good. All right. The Power of the Yacht is actually very easy to explain. So how many times have you ever sat down to a restaurant and you know what you ought to order? I know every time I'm like, I need to go ahead and just get, get grilled chicken, Caesar salad, hold the Caesar, right? But then... What happens is when the waiter comes and says, what do you want to eat? Out of my mouth, I, for some reason, I don't know what possesses me in the moment, I say chicken fried steak, extra gravy, basket of bread. Right? I don't know. Sometimes what I ought to do is not what I do. Are you all with me? So we have a tendency in life to live in the reality of something else other than what we ought to do. Some of us, we might say, I need to exercise, I ought to exercise more, or I ought to change the filters in my house every 90 days like the instructions tell me to, or you ought to floss every day, maybe that's you, or maybe you should talk less and listen more, I don't know. I know I'm not perfect, I know I'm not perfect in all that I ought to do. I fail a lot in the ought. Who's with me? But occasionally, I am changed by the power of the ought. I am changed by what ought to be because inside what ought to be is something compelling, inspiring, something that that sort of inspires me not to just do something that I ought to do to become someone that I ought to be. So a few years ago, I heard an American ambassador named Max Campbellman talk about this very idea. Here's a photo of Oh, Max, and I heard him when he was about 90 years old, and I heard him speak on this idea. And he spent many years of his life as a diplomat between the Soviet Union and the United States during the Cold War of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And if you know much of your 20th century history, during those years, the world was on the verge of World War III, right? There was, we were at the precipice, if you will, of an all-out nuclear war. And he spoke about how the power of the ought sort of shaped every day of his life. Because for him, what ought to be in this world was a world at peace and a world in which countries weren't pointing nuclear weapons at other countries. And so he spent most of his energy trying to disarm nuclear technology, but in essence, mostly just trying to keep the the peace. So every day he was diplomating and he was keeping the peace, if you will, between these two superpowers. And we actually have a lot to be thankful for while we stayed alive for guys like Max Kempelman, right? And so we, have, we should be thankful because he was dedicated to what ought to be. And even though he didn't get his ultimate ought, which was disarmament, he did actually accomplish something that changed the world. Something that kept the peace through the duration of the Cold War. And the truth is the power of the ought has changed the world 
in examples like this time and time again. The Declaration of Independence, for example, is another example. When it was written, it was just a dream, wasn't it, of what ought to be a life of freedom, a life absent of tyranny, a, a life with re- not just religious freedom, but the pursuit of happiness. And when it was written, it was not the current reality of this nation. However, today they've done studies to sort of illuminate what are the themes and the fabric of this nation, what is something that really is embedded into our society. And what they found is that the themes of the Declaration of Independence are the themes alive in this country. Therefore, what ought to be a long time ago became what is. And this is the power of the ought. It's the difference between what ought to be and what is. Martin Luther King Jr.'s leadership in the entire civil rights movement is another example of the power of the odd, isn't it? It's one in which we see, yes, of course, bigotry and racism that still exists today. But about 70 years ago, there was a fight that took it up a notch to say we need to be, there's something that we ought to become as people and as a nation. And even this month, as we celebrate Black History Month, it is a reminder that there is things that are changing that are good and that we are actually seeing change in what ought to be. We've not yet arrived. There's a lot of work to be done, but at least we are working on what ought to be. Are you with me? Not just for racial equality between white and black, but for all ethnicities. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1965 said this. He was talking about the power of the ought. He said, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Mm. King takes this power of the ought to the next level. He says, listen, who I ought to be is immaterial if you aren't becoming who you ought to be. Therefore, we are all connected. And this is really important in a world and, and especially in a culture that loves our individuality and our individualism, where we don't want to take responsibility for anything that we don't feel direct, directly responsible for. So a society that wants to have our hands cleaned, if you will, of any guilt that we aren't directly related to, King says, well, listen, it, doesn't, it isn't that easy. Like, we all have to be responsible for the time and place and the narratives of our culture that we live in, because who you are becoming affects who I am becoming. Listen, the reason this is so important, it doesn't just apply to social injustice or world peace. It applies to the church. It applies to the gospel and the cause of Christ in this world. This church and who we want to be as a church, not only individually in this church, but the church at large in the world, guess what? It's actually dependent on you becoming all that God's created you to be just as much. And so we cannot become who we're supposed to be until you become who you're supposed to be and vice versa. See, here's where we're going today is I believe that there are some yeses that have to happen today. Some of you have a yes that's dying to come out. What ought to be in your life needs to become what is. The power of the ought is already at work in you and within you. And today is going to be a day in which you're going to feel like, all right, I don't want it to be ought to be anymore. I want it to become what is. The book of Acts is full of the power of the yacht. It's uh, one moment after another of people, if you will, saying yes to what ought to be. And I love the scene in Acts 3. That's where we're going to begin. We're going to jump through a few things. But this is on the heels, of course, of receiving the Holy Spirit that we read about in Acts chapter 2. But Acts 3 verse 1 starts with the story. And it says this, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day, every day, to beg 
from those going into the temple courts. So this is a smart beggar, right? He is posting himself up as you enter the prayer room. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him their attention, gave them his attention, expecting to get something from him. So this guy, right, has been begging in that area probably since he was a child. Surviving on the change, dropped in his cup. And I'm sure when he says, they say, look at him, this is all he's expecting. He's going to get a little money. He's going to do his thing and just keep begging. Verse number six. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. Now they don't have any money. So what do they have? Well, we know that they have Jesus in them. We know that they now have the Holy Spirit on them. We know that they have a heart full of faith. And I've always said this about this particular story in this particular passage. Is this is when the disciples realize that God has, God's spirit rests on them and they have the ability to share that spirit and the power of that spirit with others. So in other words, freely you have received, freely give. What I have been given from God, I can give away to others. This is a powerful, powerful moment in the realization of how God will work through his believers. So he says, I don't have any money. And then the next part of that verse, he says, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. This is powerful right here. Like the boldness to say this. I'll never forget years ago when Addie was like three years old. And I asked her, hey, what do you think about when you think about God? I just want you to know it's never too young to start laying those theological foundations, right? So I'm like, what do you think about? I'm thinking she's going to say, ah, you know, clouds and heaven and angels and, you know, whatever. And she says, um, God fixes owies. Mm. Out of the mouths of children. God fixes owies. That's good, right? God is healer. Everyone say God is healer. Then here we go. Taking him, next part of the verse, by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Now from what we know, this is the first healing since the before the crucifixion of Jesus. From what we know, this is the first healing that's happened, if you will, post the ascension of Christ back to heaven. This is the first time Peter has ever said, Let's heal this person, and Jesus isn't in the neighborhood. He's not next to him. He's not doing the work himself. So don't you know it took some boldness to believe that now we are in a new chapter with our faith, yet I'm going to ask God to do something that's never been done without Jesus standing by my side. So this is a huge, huge moment for Peter and the disciples. And then it says this, Then he, the, 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 man, the paralyzed man, went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who had been sitting and begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Listen, when we give away what God's given us, people end up praising God instead of thanking us. And that's just a different thing. We can give away a lot and they'll thank us. But when we give away what God's given us, they end up praising the Lord. This story is certainly about the man who gets healed. But here's what's different about it. We're used to reading Jesus looks at the person and says, now you go, your faith has healed you. But this particular guy hasn't exercised any faith or anything that seems worthy of God's notice. In fact, he's just looking for money. So if it's not his faith that healed him, whose faith healed him? Peter and John, right? Peter and John are there, 
They're the ones who said what ought to be. They're the ones who looked at him and said, if we step into who we ought to be, we'll actually change who he ought to be. And so their faith affected his life. The healing of this man creates such an uproar in the city that Peter and John are actually arrested. The religious leaders, the same ones who had crucified Jesus, are now like, what are we going to do with these guys? I mean, they're, they're creating uh, miracles, and so they're all worried about the business of miracles because by all means, you got to shut that down, right? We don't need any miracles. So here we get to Acts 4. We're going to flip the page. Acts 4, verse 16. They got these guys arrested, and they say, what are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further, to shut this down, we must warn them not to speak or to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again, commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, mm, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges, because as for us, we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And we all know that's ancient. <laughs> I mean, golly, what a miracle. <laughs> let me ask you, let me ask you a serious question. Who in your life is getting in the way of your yes. A few years prior to this, Peter and John would have happily listened and faithfully listened to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. If they told them not to do something, they would have said, yes, sir. But now they have no, they're having no part of that because they know better. They aren't trying to live to please people anymore. Listen, there is forces, influences, and we'll just say it real clearly, people in your life that will get in the way of your yes. You'll be afraid to say yes to God because you're going to be afraid what they're going to think of you. Your battle is pleasing God versus pleasing people. But let me ask you, what is right, to listen to them or to listen to him? I think we know the answer to that. You have to look deep in your heart and ask yourself, who are you really saying yes to in this life? What is controlling your decisions? Sometimes it's a, a friend or a group of friends, or maybe a family member, and sometimes even in marriages, we have to really look at ourselves and say, who are we saying yes to? Because we are not on the same page, and we got to get there. Because God needs to be at the center, even of those marriages, to where both spouses are in agreement about who they say yes to. Later in Acts 5, the apostles are arrested again for the uproar in the city they've caused through healing, and now they're doing more miracles. We've got to shut that down. So what's happening is the no-to-God people are really struggling with how to shut down the yes-to-God people. You know what I'm saying? And so they're just like, let's arrest them again. Acts 5, verse 27. When they brought them before the council, the high priest demanded an explanation, saying, oh, hold on, didn't we strictly warn you that you were never again to teach in the name? But instead, now you have filled all of Jerusalem with this doctrine and are committed I love this part. You're committed to holding us responsible for this man's death. Listen, if the shoe fits, come on, Cinderella. We know, we know you did this. Peter and the apostles replied, oh, once again, we must listen to and obey God more than pleasing religious leaders. Everyone say please. please. Now say it like you're like, please, please. please. Come on, please. In other words, we got to say yes to God more than pleasing people. Please, I'm not going to listen to you. Come on. 
by the way, it was you, this is what the verse says, that had Jesus arrested and killed by crucifixion, but the God of our forefathers has raised him up. You may have tried to put him down, but God just raised him back up. Again, there will always be people who stand against what ought to be. They will try and stop what they don't understand, dismiss what they don't believe, rationalize what they can't explain. But for us, we must listen to and obey God more than trying to please them. And that's just the truth, and it's very hard. A few chapters later in Acts chapter 8, the story continues to progress. The no to God people are trying to shut down the yes to God people, so they crank it up a notch. They start arresting more of the disciples. Then it gets out of control and they kill. They literally stone to death to death one of the disciples, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7. So when you get to Acts chapter 8, the city's in such an uproar roar, that the, the disciples have to scatter because they're fearing for their lives now. So it says they scatter out of the city and they start to go to different parts of Israel. And we get to one of the stories of a disciple named Philip. Now Philip is one of the original 12 disciples. He was actually probably believed to be one of the first disciples of Jesus. He was originally a disciple of John the Baptist, is believed. And so when Jesus gets baptized, it's believed that Philip just leaves John the Baptist and starts following Jesus, as you should. Right? And so he does that. But by the way, low-key, Philip is one of my fave disciples, just so you know. In Acts 8, there are several yeses that Philip gives to the Lord. His story picks up in verse 5, and it says this. I'll just read this, the part of the bottom. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Short sentence loaded with some significance. If you know your history, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. It's, we talk about that a lot in different sermons. But why did they not? Well, you can think of the Samaritans as a sect within Judaism. They had some different beliefs, and therefore they were sort of Jewish people, but mainline Jewish people, they avoided them at all costs. They drew a stark line, a strong line between them, and, and, and they literally hated Samaritans. And so for Philip's entire life, he's been trying to avoid Samaria and Samaritans until Jesus comes along and Jesus sort of flips that understanding on its head. And so even in this moment, now Philip is alone. He's being scattered out of the city, and he's told to go to, to Samaria, and he says yes. How many know that sometimes... God calls us to do things we'd rather not do. But he says yes anyway. So he says yes, and he gets to the city. He starts preaching Jesus, begins healing people, and revival breaks out in the city. Almost surprisingly, the fire of God in Philip starts to spread throughout Samaria, and it's believed uh, that it says that many believed and many were baptized. And I encourage you to go read this story in Acts 8. We're not reading it all because it's quite, a, quite lengthy, but you when you do read it, you start to imagine how the city was just stirred up with the goodness of God. Philip must have been beaming in this moment to see God use him in such a way. Peter and John even show up on the scene because so much is happening, and they begin to help Philip a little bit with what's going on. And then God's Spirit, even as he's being poured out, directs Philip to leave. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. By the way, that just means he said yes again, right? He started out. He said yes again. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian. Two things. First, that had to be, 
had to be a little bit difficult for Philip. Philip is flying high. He's spiritual breakthroughs going on. He's, he's, he's seeing, he's basking in the fruit of his labor and seeing God move. And, and at the peak of this revival happening in Samaria, he says, I need you to leave now. I, I know that you feel like you just won the Super Bowl, but I have something else for you. And I want you to leave the city and go to the desert. I want you to leave the crowd and go to the one. By the way, the south road was the road less traveled, the desert road. I'm sure Philip is by himself on this road. There are, these are the types of things we don't like to say yes to, by the way. Right? God first called Philip to the city, and he's like, yeah, let's do this. Then he called him to the desert. Nobody likes the desert. God, this can't be from you. This is what we would think. God, this can't be from you because, God, you only call me to things I prefer. And I don't prefer the desert. So anytime we get called to something we don't prefer, we think this can't be from the Lord. God called him to the crowds. He went to Samaria. Then God called him to the one. And we think, oh, God, surely this can't be for you. I am built for the crowds. Have you seen my skills? I'm better than just going to the one. And so what happens is God starts to call us to things that are small that are hard, and things that don't make sense to us. And we have to ask ourselves, in those situations, are we going to say yes? Philip, why he's low-key fave, is he says yes to all of them. He says yes to all of them, and it leads him to an Ethiopian man. And this is a bit of an odd story. I'll read a bit of it, and there's a lot of odd I'm going to leave out, if you know the story. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki. Everyone say Kandaki. Which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot, sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Now, this is a bit of a, let me give you a bit of context. Why is an Ethiopian traveling to Israel to worship the God of Israel? Like what, why does that even happen? Because that would be a very unusual thing in this day. Well, most commentators believe that there's actually a history that stretches back centuries all the way to when a woman named the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon centuries earlier to learn about the God of Israel. Goes home, and for generations, the Jewish faith in the God of Israel had been passed on all the way down to this man who is now a servant of that queen in this day. So if you think about that story... There's a lot going on here that God is like, you know what, I'm not quite done. How many know that sometimes when we think God's already done with something, there's a thread that keeps going to where when it pops back up again, God's about to move. And so this is what's happening in this story. And then it says this, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran, not away. <laughs> Everyone say ran. ran. How many of us are running to the thing God calls us to do? Then Philip ran up to the chariot. So, and again, the Spirit tells him, I want you to go run up by that chariot. Uh, some commentators believe that the chariot is moving. And so when he's running up, he has to kind of run beside it. He's running beside the chariot. And how many know that God also calls you to do crazy things? And so he's like, yes, God, I'll, I'll run up. I'm running. I'm running. What am I supposed to do now, right? And uh, he's jogging beside the chariot. And as he did, next part of the verse, he said, and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. The guy says, how can I? Unless someone explains to me 
uh, someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now Philip proceeds to share the full gospel with him, shares Jesus with him, and the Ethiopian accepts Christ, which is an amazing thing, right? And then in verse 36, as they continued along, as they continued along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch exclaimed, look, water, we're in the desert. What can stop me from being baptized? Philip said to him, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered that the chariot be stopped, and both Philip and the Ethiopian went down to, into the water, and Philip baptized him. Now, what a perfect passage, if I can just pause for a second, to encourage many of you in this room. What is stopping you from being baptized? What is stopping you? We do got water. Next week we will at least. What's stopping you from being baptized? Is, could it be what ought to be in your life, what could be your yes today, is as simple as saying, I'm going to say yes to being baptized. There are many reasons that a believer should be baptized. Let me just give you a quick little review. Number one, you're saying, I'm going to do what God ordains me to do. God's commanded that we are baptized, so I'm going to do it. Number two, baptism expresses and symbolizes my union with Christ. Just like in a marriage, you have a wedding ring. Well, that wedding ring doesn't marry. Or isn't, the marriage isn't in the ring, but what this ring does is says that I belong to someone. And baptism just says, I belong to someone. I belong to Jesus. And then thirdly, baptism is a public, a public profession of an, and an external expression of an internal reality about your love and faith in Jesus. The scripture tells us we must tell others that we are a follower of Jesus, and this is one of the best ways to do it, through baptism. So those are just three reasons why we should be baptized. And I just want to be able to say to you, if you've never been baptized and you've given your life to Jesus, or you've never given your life to Jesus and you're like, I need to do that, well, we practice what's called believer's baptism here, and next week we're going to have a bunch of warm water, and so I'm just going to ask you real plainly, what's stopping you? What's stopping you from what ought to be in your life? So today, sign up for baptism. Sign up for baptism. Let's go back to Philip and in this Ethiopian. So that's a lot of yeses by Philip, isn't it? A lot of yeses by Philip to get to one ultimate yes by the Ethiopian. How many know that God will use our yeses for a greater purpose than just ourselves? So the things that you say yes to, just, they aren't just about you. He's doing a greater work. And if we are going to take the stories from the book of Acts and do our best to discern what's going on, Sure, there are people giving their life to Christ. Sure, God is building his church. God is building the fire, if you will. But the acts of the apostles are mostly about, get this, surrendered yeses from people who've already said yes. The compelling yeses are by the likes of Peter, Philip, John, and others. And so you need to hear something today. Just because you've said yes doesn't, mean that you're done saying yes. I could go through this room and I can hear testimony after testimony about how God has used a courageous yes in your life to do something great. But I just know that we can't settle into the one, two, or three big yeses to God and think that that's all he's intended us for. We can't get comfortable in our general yes to God and also get comfortable with our subtle no's to what ought to be. Some of you need to say yes today. I don't know what the yes is, but I do know for far too long you've been quietly saying no. 
Maybe you aren't saying no with your words, but you're saying no with your actions. God knows what you're doing, though. You aren't slipping by his notice. But just know that God's very patient with you. He's very patient when you don't do the things that he's called you to do. You may be able to quietly, quietly quit with people, but you will never be able to quietly quit with the Lord. He will always pursue you. By the way, not doing what God has called you to do through his word and not doing what God has called you to do in your heart, that is known as the sin of omission. The sin of omission. A couple weeks ago at Monday Night Prayer, we were talking through just different prayers of repentance we need, to, we need to pray. And one of them was for the sin of omission, meaning the times in which God has called us to do something, told us to do something in his word, and we've chose to not do those things for whatever reason. And that's called the sin of omission. For example, God has commanded us, right, to love our neighbor. But when we ignore them, guess what? That's called the sin of omission. And for some of us, on a personal level, maybe perhaps you felt God call you to do a certain thing. Maybe he's called you to give something up. Maybe he's called you to give something away. Maybe he's called you to surrender to a type of ministry. Maybe he's called you to, maybe he's called you to trust him with your relationship. Maybe he's called you to quit trying to please people and to please him. Maybe, though, there's a fear that's stopping you. Maybe, though, there's this, this uh, fear of people and what they think of you. Maybe you don't want to do it. Maybe you have a bad habit. I don't know what the reason is, but you're not doing what God has put in your heart to do. And listen to this. In other words, it's not the tragedy of what you've done. It's the tragedy of what you've not done. Maybe you aren't saying no completely in your heart, but you are saying no with your actions. That's what I mean by the power of the ought. Your yes to what ought to be in your life will be God's power and love in and through you. Many of you know the power of the yes. You've experienced it. But today you're sitting in the waiting room of the ought. And you think that you're waiting on God, but he is simply waiting on you. You think God when, and he said, I've already said when, and I've already said now, you need to go do and become and be who I've called you to be. But we're so afraid of what other people think. We're so afraid of failure, whatever the fear is. So the question today is this, and let's put it on screen. What ought to be in your life? I know that's a very big, broad question, but what do you need to say yes to? What do you need to say yes to? For someone in the room, I, I believe it's salvation. I believe you need to say yes to God and give your life to him. For some of you, it's baptism, and you need to do that. Many of you have already given God those yeses, though. You've already said yes to him. I'm saved by his grace. I've already said yes to him. I've, I've been baptized. But you have other yeses just like the disciples had other yeses that you need to say. Is it yes to forgiving someone? Is it yes to calling you to what he's called you? I mean, I could give you 10 million examples. And I'm about to wrap up. But I was thinking this week about the purpose of sermons like this. Why do we do them? You know, in my position, I can sometimes go, oh gosh, I gotta give another sermon. What am I actually gonna say? Like it can get to that point, right? And then I'm always like, well, what am I trying to do? Are we just trying to tickle the ears of people to make them feel good? And I'm like, no, we're definitely not doing that. That's not, I don't think I think about that that often. Or am I trying to, am I trying to 
you know, teach the Bible perfectly with every jot and tittle of the Bible to where you guys are impressed with all the knowledge that I can regurgitate from commentaries I read where you're like, wow, that blew my mind. I'm telling you, I'm not that smart, nor do I have any interest in reading that much. Are we trying to build a crowd based on great performance and worship and production and, and, and presentation? I certainly hope not. At the core, what all of this is about is helping one another surrender to one more yes. One more surrender to be obedient, to be faithful, to say, God, I am gonna, I'm gonna come after you. You're gonna be the way of life for me. Like when I think about why do we do this, why do we continually come to this point of decision, it's because, it's because at the end of the day, at the end of every sermon, at the end of what we do as a church is we have a hope that God has something that he's doing in us that's good. He wants to do more good in you. And so if we come together, are we going to do it perfect? No. But if we can help you with one more yes to God, one more surrender, one more step of obedience, that's what we're doing here. So here's what I want to do is I, I want to I help you right now in just this opportunity to become a yes to God person, even though you might have a no to God person in your life. But then you can look at them and say with all love and sincerity, what is right in God's eye, to listen to you or to listen to him? As for me, I cannot help but speaking about what I have seen and heard. So my friends, I wanna pray for us. So let's pray together, will we? Would you stand with me? We're gonna pray. God, we love you above all else. We ask that Holy Spirit, you come. Come in this moment, even lead us right now in this moment. We invite your thoughts to become our thoughts. We invite you, Lord. Maybe even your own heart right now to say, Lord, I would just open my heart to you today. I want to open my heart right now in this moment. And before I leave, I just felt like, man, I have to give this invitation today. For this moment, some of you, some of you need to respond to the invitation that Jesus has given every person to say yes to him. So I want to boldly invite any of you in this room to say yes to God, to his gift of salvation. God invites all people to come to know him, to come to be in relationship with him, and it happens through a surrender. It happens through you saying, God, I say yes to you. I will follow you the rest of my life. My life. I want to make you Lord of my life. And the Bible, of course, says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so I just want to give you, everybody's heads bowed, eyes closed, I want to give you the opportunity to say yes to God. If you want to say yes to him, you just got to say a simple prayer. This is just one of the ways you can surrender, but this is, this is, an, this is a way that it says, I'm going to pray a surrendered spirit. Just say, Jesus, I give you my life. Right now, if you'd like to receive Christ, say, Jesus, I give you my life. Just pray that prayer. Jesus, I give you my life. You might say to him now, just say, I confess that you are Lord. Go ahead and pray that. I confess you are Lord, and I ask for forgiveness of my sin. And then just say this. Say, I commit to following you for the rest of my life. Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you, God, for saving me. Real quick, everybody's heads bowed. If you just prayed that prayer, if you just said, Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. 
No one's looking around, but just, just a moment of boldness. Would you just lift your hand if you prayed that? Because I want to pray for you. And I just want to know, yeah, is there someone? Yeah, there's a few people, several people. Thank you, Jesus. I see several in the room raising their hand. We're just going to pray over you. I'm just going to pray over you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, guys, for your courage. Lord, I just pray over every person that's raised their hand. Would you just seal this moment in their heart that they're saying yes to you on what ought to be in their life and what ought to be is now what is. Lord, plant this seed of salvation in good soil today. They would grow roots deep in, into you, that they would have faith that is strong like an oak tree. God, I pray over these people. Thank you for the change you just did in their heart as they just said, Jesus, I give you my life. We praise you, Lord. We just celebrate God. I mean, those that just gave their life to Christ is so good. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If there's anything we can pray with you about, or if you have questions about God, we'd love to talk with you. Please visit our contact page at okccommunitychurch.com.